They want to know where you are today and where you want to go. They want to know which risks and opportunities are arising in your industry and how prepared are you for that change. They want to hear your narrative. So if you are out there listening to this podcast and if you are corporate, if you haven't started your ESG journey, please start today because it's not just about the risks. This is not a tick box exercise. This is about you making money out of this change that is coming your way. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. I'm John Uren, Head of Products and Strategy at the Sustainable Finance Group at Bank of Montreal. On today's Sustainability Leaders podcast, we're joined by Patricia Torres, Head of Sustainable Finance Solutions at Bloomberg. Welcome, Patricia, and thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you, John, for having me here. Bloomberg recently hosted its third annual Sustainable Finance Week, with BMO as a presenting sponsor for the second consecutive year. Sustainable Finance Week brings together corporations, clients, and thought leaders for a discussion on sustainable finance, focusing on ideas and innovations that drive environmental and social improvement on a global scale. This year's forum featured speakers from Patagonia, from Walmart, from Maple Leaf Foods, and more, and provided a series of thought-provoking discussions on topics ranging from sustainable supply chains to advancing the circular economy to empowering the future of workforce, and more. And what a time for a discussion such as this. 2020 has been unlike any other year, with COVID-19 affecting everything in the markets from food supply to global trade to virtually every aspect of buy and sell side activities. And the impact on sustainable finance has been tangible. COVID-19 has impacted each of ES&G components and left companies scrambling to future-proof their strategies and respond to investors' needs for long-term performance and resilience. More and more, we're seeing financial opportunities that have arisen from sustainability being prioritized. And in some instances, we're seeing the risks of poor ESG performance as well. But one thing is certain, ESG can't be ignored. ESG investments are on track to account for 75 trillion of all investments by 2025. And in the last eight years alone, sustainably managed assets under management have grown from 11% to 30. In the fixed income market, there's been over 500 billion in sustainable debt issued in 2020 alone, including over 50 billion in COVID relief bonds, along with other types of financing used to address racial inequities, as well as other key social issues. Bloomberg brings together a number of sustainable finance solutions, offering data-driven insights to help investors integrate ESG throughout the full investment process. This includes ESG solutions that combine and standardize company reported and third-party data, including ESG scoring, access to news and research, and analytics built specifically for investors. Patricia, thank you again for joining the podcast. Now, as the head of sustainable finance solutions at Bloomberg, what are the most interesting ESG trends that you have observed this year? and, And what do you predict for 2021? I think this is a great question to start. I think the first one has to be climate. 
Environmental threats dominate the top five long-term risks by likelihood and occupy three of the top five spots by impact, according to the Global Risk Report. We have seen economic damage worldwide from flooding last year was 82 billion, the greatest of any natural peril, according to Aeon. And only 16% of that was actually insured. We've seen more than 1,500 organizations supporting the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, the TCFT, and over 110 regulators. 35% of the environmental shareholder proposals brought up in 2020 proxy season were linked to climate change. So climate risk needs to be added to the board agenda and companies should follow TCFD reporting recommendations on governance, risk, strategy and data metrics. So that's my number one for you, which I think was very strong this year, but 2021 is even going to be even stronger. The number two for me is this conversation between values versus value. So can ESG deliver alpha? Can we be good citizens and still make money? So I think we're getting into more of this discussion these days. We wrote today in our ESG daily newsletter that NL, the European utility, expects to increase profit by as much 10% a year through 2023 by lowering their cost of debt, by growing sustainable finance to 70% plus of total gross debt in 2030 from about a third, and also by investing 40 billion euros in the plan of which 17 billion will be in renewable energies. And they also said that, that they will actually align 90% of NL's consolidated investments with, with SDGs and 80 to 90% to the EU taxonomy criteria. So I think the answer is yes. I think we can actually see that we can deliver both. We can deliver value to our stakeholders and still contribute to a sustainable world. So this is the pledge that so many companies like Unilever have done back in 2010. We know that solar and onshore wind power are now the cheapest new sources of electricity in at least two thirds of the world. So if you don't know where to start, start there. Are the companies you are investing in leveraging renewable energy and sustainable finance? My third big trend that I've seen this year, and actually that you also mentioned in your introduction, is the sustainable finance debt. The message that we have heard from several governments is that the, the economic recovery needs to be social and green. So the green bond issuance this year, as of November 17, has climbed to more than 270 billion, surpassing last year's total hit to a new record. That comes as more companies and governments are turning to green securities for the first time to fund projects for, clean, for cleaner growth. The market will get a further boost next year from the European Union, which will become the world's largest issuer when it starts to sell 225 billion euros of green bonds as part of its pandemic recovering fund. We have also seen this year the European Social Bond, which was the most oversubscribed bond ever with orders reaching more than 233 billion euros. So in total, if we add all these different times of debt, as you said, a loan this year is over 500 billion. If you take a look at loans, for example, this year alone, there was an issuance over 137 billion linked to green and sustainability linked loans. If you are a company out there, you can follow Mark's example where they actually have issued a 5 billion revolver loan linked to a cut to their performance in greenhouse gas emissions. 
on the terminal, we show to our clients the green leaf for green bonds, and we are now adding other icons to demonstrate which bonds are social or sustainability. We have started hearing clients using the words of green yields versus brown yields. And of course, this will also mean that in 2021, we'll should expect more fixed income ESG indices coming out to the market. As number four, I feel that next year, I think we'll see a much more active role expected from government, a better balance between the carrots and the stick. So Joe Biden promised a two trillion green deal. The UK government launched a 4.2 billion pound green stimulus package to bring the UK closer to this legally binding net zero emissions reduction target. More and more governments are launching carbon neutral targets, Spain, Japan, China, South Korea. The European Commission put aside 1 trillion to be the first continent to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050. So I think we should expect governments to launch green activities and to set up regulation in the SG space. And I'm hoping that it will be a global standardized regulation. I think we all want one framework to use. We currently have so many. CFA being the latest one to say that they'll be launching their own by May 2021. And for the last one, I actually have two. I didn't know which one to choose. I'm actually going to share both. Which one? One is the social and the other one is the circle economy. So in the last Elgman Trust report, social matters more than ever. COVID and George Floyd's death back in June brought health and safety, social issues in companies, local community and human capital management at the top of the agenda. So during the 2020 proxy season, support for resolutions on gender and racial diversity and inclusion disclosure at the workforce and board level was 43% on average. And I've seen big asset managers demanding companies to disclose EEO data or EEO data alike. For those of you on the, on the podcast that are not familiar with the EEO data, the EEO data is a survey that any company with more than 100 employees in the States need to submit that breaks down employment data by race, ethnicity, gender, and job category. So social is a big theme and is going to be continue to become that big theme in 2021. And the last one for me is that circle economy. With the global population predicted to approach 9 billion people by 2030, we're using more resources that the planet can provide. And our future needs and depends on reusing what we have in a sustainable way. I've read the reports where the circle economy was estimated to be at the value of 4.5 trillion. And honestly, this could be the biggest wave of business transformation that companies can embark. We are seeing new entrants in the market, companies that are mining urban waste, secondhand clothes shops and toys shops in the internet, but also established brands transforming their businesses like Timberland, producing footwear using recycled tires. So those are my five, John. Now, that's wonderful, Patricia. Thank you so much for sharing a lot of really interesting themes that you sort of picked up on. And I want to start with the one around sustainability and sustainable finance driving alpha. You know, you mentioned Anel specifically. And when I think of Anel, who's, you know, one of the first issuers to come to market with a sustainability linked bond in 2019, they were doing that because they had very, you know, aggressive commitments to transition towards renewable energy and were actually tying the coupons that they paid under their sustainability linked bond offering 
to achieving, or rather, you know, a step up if they didn't achieve their very ambitious goals they had related to transitioning to renewable energy sources. You know, the way a company like Enel looks at it, and I think this is the right way to look at Alpha, is really a triple bottom line concept where it's not enough for companies just to be focused on sort of the pure economic bottom line, but actually looking at environmental and social opportunities as well as a way to drive the profitability and economic outcomes within their organization. So I think we're going to see more companies, you know, go the sustainability linked bond route, such as Enel and, and others in future. And so I think that's a that's a really good, you know, look back on 2020, but also as we project out into 2021, that, that transition from risk to opportunity in the sustainable finance space. I also just wanted to call out a couple of other points that you made. You mentioned the EU's strong commitment to a sustainable future. And I did just want to call out the 20 billion euro sure bond that they issued just last month, where they're using proceeds to help offset some of the uh, economic impact on workers within the EU. So that was a great example of, you know, the EU using a social or sustainability bond in, in an innovative way that helps their member countries deal with some of the fallout from COVID. And as I mentioned in the intro, we're seeing that with some other issuers as they've come to market this year. And, and I expect we'll see that in the fixed income market into 2021 as well. And then finally, I wanted to call out, you know, you mentioned government involvement and, you know, particularly you highlighted the situation in the U.S. and, you know, right here in Canada as well. You know, our government has, has repledged their commitment to be net zero by 2050 just very recently and talking about putting in different benchmarks and steps for our economy to get there. So I definitely think we're going to see more and more governments that are formalizing their plans to, to get to a, you know, Paris aligned future, to get to a net zero future. And that will have major implications, I would say, on the markets and, and the companies that are participating in industries that are impacted by the, those government announcements. I'm going to transition, Patricia, to, to data, actually, because I know Bloomberg is uh, at its core a data company. But, you know, the question I guess I have is from the demand you're seeing for ESG data, how important do you think it is that corporations measure, monitor and disclose key ESG information? Honestly, it's extremely important. Bloomberg tracks proactively 11.7 thousand companies across the world. And in 2011, only 20% of the S&P 500 companies published corporate social responsibility reports. But as of 2019, more than 90% are now publishing these reports. So I think the question is, why are these companies reporting on ESG? Because they have to or because they want to? And I feel that today is because they want to. They want to show to their clients and suppliers that they care, to their communities. Look at what Sony says. For us to continue with this kind of business, the planet and society must be sustainable and healthy. Otherwise, Sony cannot exist. So I feel that sustainability, exactly as you said, John, is not just about risks. It's about opportunities. It's about cost savings and new revenue streams. Which waste can you turn into revenues? So if you don't measure your energy efficiency, as an example, if you don't compare your numbers with your peers, you could potentially be leaving money at the table. So by disclosing your data to the markets, by telling your stakeholders how committed you are to change, this is exactly what they want to hear. They want to know where you are today and where you want to go. They want to know which risks and opportunities are arising in your industry and how prepared are you for that change? 
They want to hear your narrative. So if you are out there listening to this podcast and if you are corporate, if you haven't started your ESG journey, please start today because it's not just about the risks. This is not a tick box exercise. This is about you making money out of this change that is coming your way. Yeah, I completely agree with that, Patricia. And what I can tell you from, from the bank's perspective, we're having those conversations with our corporate clients all the time. And they're telling us that they know, you know, either they're already great disclosers and they want to be even better as it relates to disclosing things like scope one, two, and three greenhouse gas emissions, or maybe they don't have sort of, you know, above average disclosure. And they're talking to us about solutions and ways that they can get that information out there. You know, a question we often get as it relates to what are the most appropriate measures to be disclosing, where are the areas that we could be best improving from an ESG perspective is really around, you know, ESG scoring. So there's a number of companies um, that provide sort of third-party ESG risk ratings. It's not always clear around how they're generating and determining what their overall ESG risk rating is for the particular company. And I know Bloomberg recently announced its own ESG scoring model. Can you give us a little bit more information on your scoring model and in particular, you know, your commitment to transparency and, and data and, and why that's important as it relates to scoring methodologies? No, oh, absolutely. So every single asset manager, even hedge funds these days, what they're trying to do is that they're trying to integrate ESG into their investment process. So it's no longer accepted to call a fund ESG by solely excluding companies in particular controversial sectors and services like controversial weapons, or by using an overall third-party ESG score as part of the security selection process. You need to integrate ESG and corporate engagement, and when implemented well, they can lead to much better performance. And that starts by you understanding fully the ESG score that you are using at a deeper level. And so truly understanding ESG scores from from third parties is not easy at all. And we know that because we have just launched ours. And there are mainly three reasons. One is not every company shares the same ESG metrics. So not everyone discloses the same data. The data that companies disclose potentially are not even in the same units. They're not even comparable. Maybe they don't represent 80% of the operations. Look at scope three data, for example, is a disaster. Like people want to know scope three, the upstream and downstream. We don't see disclosure, good disclosure out there today. Then number two, there are several materiality frameworks out there. Which ones should I choose? Should I choose SASB, GRI, TCFD, CDP, the CFA that is coming next year? Which field should I use? Which weight should I apply to each field? Which overall themes do I want to measure or focus on? And even when people look at third-party scores, can they see any correlation between them? The answer is no. The correlation is very low. It's at 61. And therefore, the, there's not even a consensus about how a company looks today from an ESG perspective. So what we have seen is that everyone is sourcing data, is defining a materiality framework, is creating scores, writing research notes with an ESG lens, and then tracking ESG progress. So our decision was to support customers in this journey and provide full transparency in each step. And at Bloomberg, that's exactly what we do. We strive to bring transparency to the markets. And this is the driving factor when we define what we wanted our scores to be, what we wanted to reward which was performance, but also disclosure. Our Bloomberg scores, they rely solely on public reported data. 
We don't estimate any values. Everything can be traced back to a report. So our premise is that data should be at the heart of how a company performance is assessed. But it's not just any data. It's data that is material, that has business relevance for that industry. So a lot of our clients, they ask us to say, but how are your scores different from other providers? And we tell them, look, it's because of our data. All our data is comparable, is curated, is normalized across the industry, and they always represent 80% of the operations and the workforce. It's also because we have the final materiality framework, which we try to look at SAS, BTCFD, GRI, CDP, and industry-specific frameworks like IPCA, and we basically create our own We also tell our clients how important each field is. So we bring transparency on which fields we used, also how we group those fields, the metadata that we have associated for each field. And we also tell them which issues are really, truly relevant for each industry, which sometimes is different for a sector. I think the third thing that we do that is different is our scoring quant model. So it's a data-driven model, but also a quant model behind the scenes. So how do we score fields? So for example, how should you score fatality rates? A 10 score is quite easy, right? A company gets 10 points if they have zero fatalities. But what about a score of five? What about a score of three? So in our case, the maximum points that a non-zero fatality rate can have is seven, and we are using a gamma distribution. But these are things that our clients are actually going through today when they're trying to create their own ESG scores. So, for example, like another question is, how do we reward policy fields versus quantitative fields? As an example, does the company have a GAG emissions reduction policy? That's, that's a policy field. Should this policy field have the same weight as a scope one and scope two emissions, for example? Or should they have different weights? How do you aggregate data, for example? So if you have a field score, how do you aggregate data to a subfield score, for example? What's your aggregation methodology? We actually use a p-mean because we want to make sure that we reward consistency across all the different issues. Another issue is that what about if you're only using data? How do you deal with undisclosed data? So Bloomberg, we introduced a disclosure score. So... In a nutshell, the reason why we're different is because we're trying to do the same work that our clients are trying to do every single day. We are sourcing data, we're curating data, making data comparable, creating a taxonomy, scoring that taxonomy, and then aggregating all those scores up to the top level, providing full transparency. So if a client wants to come to us, they can actually see the data that we use. They can even trace it back to the original document. And they see how we thought about the problem, which industries we have created, which which companies we have associated for each industry, and how we aggregated data from the very bottom to the top. So, for example, for integrated oils, any the Italian major oil company comes comes on top when you look at environmental score uh, using 2019 fiscal year data. And they've scored a 6.4 out of 10. So as you can see, And E is not perfect. They still have a space to improve. This is exactly what our clients want to see. They want to distinguish between how much data a company has disclosed versus for the data that they have disclosed, how good was their performance. And out of the eight key ESG issues that E has disclosed, they had perfect disclosure for four. 
However, for wastewater management, this is where they actually had their lowest score, issue score. And if any wants to know who is the best in wastewater management today, they can go to our scores and they can actually take a look and see who ranked on the top and exactly what are they doing by going back to the original document where we took the data from. So I think in a nutshell, to really truly answer your question is, is about transparency. We really are, we are really trying to do exactly the job that our clients are trying to do. So we are re taking really good care about data and curating data and normalizing data because if our data is not good, we cannot produce strong ESG scores. So we have released scores for oil and gas, we have released scores for chemicals, we have also, and we're about to release scores for metals and mining. And, and after that, we'll continue to do the materials and then utilities. So we're super excited. So this is on the ES side, on the G side, we've released board composition for 4.3 thousand companies. And we are now going to be releasing executive compensation early next year. So this is a really interesting project that is allowing us to go deeper into the data and actually understanding how difficult this is. So this is not easy. I agree it's not easy, Patricia, but it, it is so necessary and so relevant for the market. Some of the themes I pulled out of what you're saying there around transparency and consistency as it relates to the data that companies are producing you know, when I think of Bloomberg, you're really going from strength to strength, right? You're already a, a, a data market leader in terms of you have more access to data than virtually any other company in the world. And then using that to refine and, and ensure that the, the most relevant and correct data is making its way through to both investors so that they can get comfortable in, in the companies they're holding in their portfolios, but also to issuers, which is really relevant for access to capital. Right. So, so take sustainability linked bonds, for instance. It's, uh, we were talking about them earlier in the Enel example. It's hard enough for investors to calculate the likelihood of, of an issuer achieving or not achieving certain sustainability KPIs. But to the extent those KPIs, the way they're measured and the way they're reported, you know, to the extent they become more transparent and the disclosure is consistent, then we'll see investors get more comfortable, which in turn really catalyzes and accelerates the market because as investors are comfortable, you know, calculating the NPV of, of a sustainability linked bond and the expected coupon payment, then issuers will get more comfortable bringing these creative solutions to market. And it's really creating the flywheel effect, which, which is a you know, great outcome for this space. One other point to note, I, I know Bloomberg announced just last month, I believe, that the MSCI ESG ratings are also available on your terminal. And again, this is just a great step as it relates to disclosure and, and making really relevant information available. So, so kudos to you and your team. You know, you mentioned ESG scores specifically for oil and gas sector, and I just quickly want to focus on that for a moment. So you may be aware that there's, there's transition taxonomy work underway here in Canada and it's the result of the expert panel on sustainable finances recommendation that we develop a made in Canada taxonomy that accounts for some of the realities of our economy, which is really you know, quite natural resources intensive, unlike many other jurisdictions in the world. So focusing on that from an ESG scoring perspective, you know, how does your scoring model account for, I guess, jurisdictional differences, say, for oil and gas companies in Europe versus in Canada? That's a great question, John. Our model currently actually is region agnostic. So when assessing the E and the S element and also the G, we compare them from an industry perspective from the ES side. And on the G, we actually compare it on a global level. 
So the materiality framework is based on what what could have a financial impact on companies' operations, and it's very industry-specific. And on the G side, even though different nations have specific governance regulations and laws, we have a framework to consider them on a global level based on universal best practices. So we have taken the liberty to say that regardless of where you are in the world, investors strive for the same high standards of governance. So what we offer instead is that people can actually rank companies based on countries. So for example, if they want to take a look and to say which company has the highest score, for example, for integrated oils, this is region agnostic, but they can also be taking a look and say which oil and gas company is the best within Canada based on those region-specific characteristics. But our scores, we actually took the liberty to decide that best practices should be expected everywhere, and therefore we're going to be striving and pushing for disclosure and for performance on a global level. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that is one way, if you want to get consistency across the ESG scores, you kind of have to take that approach in terms of best practices or best practices. And it's it's a bit more jurisdictionally agnostic, which I, I think that sort of aligns with the overall thesis for your scoring model. Exactly. So switching gears just a little, I, I wanted to, to talk about Bloomberg's gender equality index. Um, now, I know your framework provides a standardized disclosure method to report gender data across several factors, but I'm hoping you can tell us a bit more about the gender equality index and, and in particular, you know, what type of data you're asking companies to disclose and, and what best in class disclosure looks like. Sure. I think gender diversity is a business imperative. It has been proven that a commitment to gender inclusion creates a supportive work environment, which in turn fosters increased productivity and collaboration, sparking innovation and driving better business performance. And we have started our journey back in 2016. At the time, Peter Grauer, our chairman, reached out to financial institutions, and we started by only asking companies to disclose data. And we only had around 25 companies at the time. Today, in 2020, our 2020 index represents 325 global companies spanning from 50 industries headquartered across 42 countries and regions, where companies were chosen based on both disclosure and performance. And all this data is available on the Bloomberg terminal, and we incentivize companies to also make it available also in their website. So this is really important because this is the only survey that we do to collect ESG data. But regardless, we continue to say to the companies, this is not a Bloomberg survey. This is for you to use to actually tell your stakeholders in the market how well you are performing in this space. So don't just give us the data, make your data publicly available on your website. So our survey today is divided across five dimensions. So the first one is female leadership and talent pipeline. So attracting and retaining and developing women into senior leader positions. So we're trying to see how women move from the different leadership positions up to the top. And we're also trying to review an equal opportunity for pipeline development. So in terms of promotions, an example of a question that we ask is what percentage of the company's senior management are women? The second thing that we take a look at is equal pay and gender pay parity. So how is closing gender pay gap through transparent and effective action plans? So, for example, one of the questions that we ask is, what is the company's proportion of women in the top pay quartile globally? What is the proportion of women in the middle top pay quartile globally, as an example? 
So we really want to know exactly if you look and if you rank everybody by pay, what is the percentage of women on those particular quartiles? The third dimension is inclusive culture. So what are the policies, the benefits and the programs that contribute to an inclusive work environment where all employees feel safe and feel that they are valued and they have equal opportunities? We don't just measure policies, but we actually go an extra step. We also ask them, so if they have a great offering, but if employees don't take full time off, what might that say about the corporate culture? So, for example, if you're allowed to take maternity leave, but if you don't use your maternity leave, do you really feel safe in taking maternity leave? The number four dimension is sexual harassment policies. We really want to actually understand how does the company feel about sexual harassment? Do they have policies in place? Do they actually have training in place? So one of the questions that we ask as an example is, are employees required to complete sexual harassment training at least once a year? And the fifth dimension is pro-women brand, how a company is perceived by, by stakeholders such as supply chain, products and services, how women are portrayed in advertising and external support for women in the community. So one of the questions that we ask there is, for example, does the company have a supplier diversity program that includes women suppliers and vendors? So, John, in, in total, we have more than 50 questions and we're asking companies to respond based on their overall workforce, which is not easy. So like we're trying to ask, for example, a Unilever to think about all their operations in the world. And as I mentioned to you before, any data that we have on the terminal needs to represent 80% of the operations. So we saw the biggest average disclosure score in utility sector and the best performance score and overall score in financials. So in our survey, the best company was um, Banco Santander. They actually had the highest score. So they have a perfect score for equal pay, which sometimes actually companies struggle to disclose this information and in the pro-women brand. And you know what, what Anna Boutin says? She says, diversity is not just good for women, it's good for men and society. And so achieving that diversity in gender and in so many other areas like race, backgrounds, age and diversity is key to succeeding in today's world. This year, we have received more than 460 submissions despite COVID-19. And our message is simple. It all starts with data and data disclosure. You need to understand where you are in your journey. You need to compare yourself against your peers and set goals to improve over time, holding yourself accountable for change. In 2021, we may make a few enhancements. There has been a tremendous focus on race and ethnicity reporting this year. Although it may be difficult to report, we need to take action and we want to support and be there by our clients. Well, thank you, Patricia. I do look forward to those announcements this year. That That is exciting to hear, and I'm, I'm sure it'll be market leading. And just kudos to your team again for the, the 360 deep dive review of, of gender equality within companies. You know, I, I've heard COVID-19 has triggered what's being referred to as a, a she session with women being overly affected by job losses and restructurings arising from the pandemic. You know, the GEI provides a deep dive into disclosure of companies, including, you know, how they're investing in women in the workplace. And the index will help to prop up the right kinds of companies that really are committed to gender equality in the workplace. So thank you, Patricia, 
for joining BMO's Sustainability Leaders podcast. And thank you to Bloomberg for driving a data-driven approach to ESG performance rooted in transparency and disclosure. It was a pleasure, John. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.